This is Science Wise, Questions at the Confluence of Science and Ethics, a podcast produced in conjunction with the Nobel Conference at Gustavus Adolphus College. I'm your host, Lisa Heldke, Director of the Nobel Conference and Philosophy Professor at Gustavus. This fall's Nobel Conference is taking place virtually on October 6th and 7th, 2020. You can find details about how to participate on the Gustavus website. The theme of the 2020 conference is Cancer in the Age of Biotechnology. It will focus on the spectacular successes being realized by these new biologically derived drugs and on the challenges that many persons with cancer face in trying to access treatment. Today's guest, Dr. Charles Sawyers, will be one of the seven main presenters at the conference. Dr. Sawyers has been at the center of the creation of one of the earliest of these drugs, a so-called targeted therapy. Chronic myelogenous leukemia, or CML, is a blood cancer that causes the body to produce cells in which two ordinarily separate chromosomes fuse together to create an abnormal protein. This new fusion protein sends an unregulated signal telling the cell to divide. Each new cell has the same protein, so every cell is being instructed to divide. The result is uncontrolled cell proliferation, which is sort of the textbook definition of cancer. Enter the drug Gleevec, the first member of a class of cancer therapies created to target abnormal proteins and block the signals they send for cells to divide. Gleevec is a targeted therapy because it kills only the cancer cells, leaving the normal cells untouched. The success of this drug launched the development of a host of drugs that target cells with specific genetic abnormalities. Its arrival helped to introduce what we might call the era of precision medicine. Gleevec was developed by Charles Sawyers, a research physician at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, in collaboration with Brian Drucker at Oregon Health Sciences University and Nicholas Leiden. In 2009, their work on CML was recognized with the Lasker DeBakey Clinical Medical Research Award, the highest award given to medical research in the U.S. and dubbed America's Nobel Focusing his research on molecularly targeted therapies, especially new therapies for persons with cancer, Sawyers has been part of a collaboration to develop two new drugs for the treatment of advanced prostate cancer, Extandi and Erlida, both of which are now approved, one I think very recently. Since 2016, Charles Sawyers has been involved in another major endeavor that has potential to support the work of cancer researchers everywhere. He founded Project Genie, a major initiative to improve cancer research by developing a massive database. Sawyer's launch Project Genie, which stands for Genomics Evidence Neoplasia Information Exchange, in collaboration with the American Association of Cancer Researchers. Presently, 18 major research centers from around the world send their data to a common database, which now houses information on nearly 100,000 patients. By pooling data from multiple institutions, a database can provide researchers with information on larger groups of patients to provide better statistical analysis. By providing a better understanding of cancer outcomes from treatments of genetically similar cancers, the Genie database can, for example, allow physicians to identify patients who may benefit from drugs approved for other uses. Sawyers presently serves as the chair of the executive committee for Project Genie. Dr. Charles Sawyers is the Marie Jose and Henry R. Kravis Chair in Human Oncology and Pathogenesis and Chair of the Human Oncology and Pathogenesis Program at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, as well as the, an investigator for the Howard Hughes Medical Institution. Welcome to Science Wise, Dr. Sawyers. Thank you, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be here. We are sorry to not be welcoming you in person this this fall 2020, but we're very happy to um, to have you as a part of this really important cancer conference. Uh, so I'm going to start with a variation on the usual elevator speech theme. As we've told you in our advanced um, information about the conference, the Nobel Conference brings together an unusual audience. It brings together people in their first biology class in high school, senior citizens who still are very much active learners, and then in between there will be physicians and uh, researchers who are in your very specialty. Um, so I think you need a freight elevator to get a representative sampling of that um, audience together. So if you were on a freight elevator of that crazy collection of people, what would you tell them that it is that you study? And what is it that you literally do? How do you do what it is that you do? Uh, that's, a, that's a great 
An interesting question. I would <laughs> say what I do is I have an incredibly curious mind and uh, I want to solve puzzles. Um, and the puzzles that I'm most interested in involve uh, cancer. And that dates back to my medical training when I learned about cancer. I mean, I guess I learned about it as a layperson, but then I learned about it in more depth as a medical student. Um, and it became an interesting puzzle, not only for the um, challenges in treating cancer and the personal relationships with patients that are, are quite special and, and obviously intense, um, but the puzzle of why does a normal cell go rogue and start growing uncontrollably. Um, so solving that puzzle, that curiosity is, is what, I, what led me down this uh, career path and what I do every day. And so maybe to be more concrete with my answer, mm-hmm. um, I, uh, I come into my laboratory. Um, I have a team of about 15 uh, postdoctoral fellows, uh, some of whom are, have medical training, some of whom are straight PhD training. Um, I have graduate students who are getting a PhD in cancer biology, and I have several technicians. And, and we work on um, cancer-related questions using different types of models. Um, uh, and it includes growing uh, cells in, in the laboratory and in tissue culture incubators. Uh, it includes experiments using mice. Um, and eventually, um, the work has led, as you mentioned in your introduction, to um, drugs that are now used to treat humans with cancer. And I want to get to those drugs in a second. Um, something you said about the, the varied backgrounds of the people who work in your lab reminds me. My colleague Dwight Stoll in the chemistry department, who's one of the people um, coordinating this conference, always emphasizes how important it is for students with interest in all kinds of fields to imagine themselves going into this field. Can you say a little bit more about why it's valuable that your lab includes PhDs and MDs, uh, people who are studying cancer from these different angles? Why, why do you need that? Well, just like um, solving any problem, you need a diverse set of people around the table to, um, uh, to you know, bring their thoughts uh, when you're sort of brainstorming about which way to go, how to frame a question. Um, the other th- thing that you know I really like about having younger uh, people in the room is they bring such a fresh perspective. You know that, that they haven't been indoctrinated in the dogma of you know it has to be this way. You know, you know, which is you know a, a, an interesting you know thing in the history of science as, as to how. You know, scientific theory, you know, builds on itself. We have this impression that science is this objective process by which evidence builds upon evidence. But there are times when you just sort of need to th- throw a model away and, and rethink it. And um, and there have been a, you know, at least one or two examples in work that I've been involved in where we actually thought it was X, but, you know, that turned around completely and it's Y. Um, and, and having someone who can, you know, ask a sort of almost naive question about, oh, why is it so? Uh, and you kind of ask yourself, why is it so? Just because, you know, I've been reading these review articles for the last 10 <laughs> years, doesn't mean it has to be that way. So, I mean, for all those reasons, I think having a, uh, a mix of people around the table is the best way to solve a problem. It and it's fun. Like- <laughs> and I'm sure that that's got to be an important part in the mix in the mix of this very very serious and devastating uh, condition. To to have something be fun about it is probably a relief. It sounds yeah. also like um, having a, a head of a laboratory who has a sense of of if I may say humbleness is also valuable. How would you describe your relationship with the people that work with you? I think it's. Uh, I do. I have been, you know, accused of being too humble at times. But, um, but I, uh, I think it's a combination of um, of allow allowing people to develop their ideas. I mean, it, um, th- there's obviously a pride that one has when you know 
one suggests an idea to, at a group meeting and, and people then embrace it and it gathers momentum. Um, there's also, but I, I think I also, because of my experience, I feel like I have, you know, for lack of a better term, a sixth sense or a nose for where you're going to mm. run into a, a brick wall if you keep going that direction versus, you know, I, I see more, you know, opportunity if we sort of design the experiment this way rather than that way or mm-hmm. you know, things like that. And so I, I generally try to sort of steer, uh, if I have a very strong opinion rather than express it strongly at a meeting, I'd rather take a more Socratic approach and mm-hmm. ask, you know, well, let's think about what might happen if, you know, here are the alternative outcomes and how would you interpret this versus that? And hopefully they'll come to the decision themselves. But if I have to, I just say, no, you know, I'm paying for the work. Let's do it this way. (laughs) And and, and paying for the work is not trivial these days. Research is expensive. Um, I can only imagine. Uh, As you're talking about it, I'm led to ask, do you think, would you, when you list the 10 um, descriptors of your work, would teacher be on that list of 10? Because it strikes me that what you're, what you're being most importantly in that description is is a, a modeler for up and coming researchers. No, I, I'm absolutely. I mean, I I I do have um, some teaching for more formal teaching responsibilities uh, with the graduate program um, here at Sloan Kettering as well as at Weill Cornell across the street. Um, but it's pretty limited. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. It's a. But I I do, I would say it's teaching in the sense of apprenticeship. And mm-hmm. mentorship, mm-hmm. Um, and I really enjoy it. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure, just like you, um, seeing a student sort of have the light bulb go off and then run with it. Yeah, you know, it's it's a it's a great pleasure, um, and, and a, a sense of pride in the teacher uh, mm-hmm. to see that happen. Exactly. Absolutely. And I will try not to resent you for the fact that I bet you don't grade very many papers. <laughs> we have. We have. We have postdoctoral fellows who volunteer to uh, be the preceptors at our seminars and yeah, they grade the papers <laughs> for, a short, for a small stipend. <laughs> uh, so switching gears, though, in, in all seriousness, um, I want to hear more about uh, your work on CML and how that drug, Gleevec, or its generic name, I think, is imatinib. How did that change the lives of those um, with that disease? Well, the answer is it it completely transformed um, the lives of those patients. When I was um, in my medical training in the 80s, and the um, standard treatment for chronic myeloid leukemia um, was a bone marrow transplant. Um, And it it actually works. Uh, It it can cure patients. The problems are that... um, only about a third or so of patients are really ideal for undergoing a transplant because of their age and being too old or um, because they uh, don't have a properly matched donor. So when you get a bone marrow transplant, the theory, well, it's not theory, it's the reality, is that you give very high doses of chemotherapy and radiation uh, to uh with the effect of completely wiping out all of the blood, the production of blood. Um, and so a patient would die if they didn't get uh, rescued with a transplant of new bone marrow. Um, and so that for reasons is, is, is still, it's a very effective therapy for different kinds of leukemia and is still widely used today, but it actually was the Amongst the different leukemias, chronic myeloid leukemia was the success story with that procedure. But the price, in addition to not everyone having the ability to undergo the procedure, um, is the t- the procedure is very toxic, and there's a risk of death from undergoing just the decision to, pr- to proceed. So, um, so that was the sort of state of the art when I entered into it, and. Um, and now the Gleevec is a pill that's taken once a day. Um, it has a very minimal side effect profile. I mean, there are a few little things, 
but compared to chemotherapy or other you know ways of controlling the disease you know it's it's night and day um and uh and there there are patients who i you know i was treating patients the very first patients who ever took the drug um when i was uh at ucla where i was doing this work work originally and i'm still in touch with several of those patients um they're now you know on their 20 plus year anniversary and they send pictures of their me of them and me from 20 something years ago and then pictures of themselves now with their dogs and family and i've even met a few who travel pre-pandemic who were you know in new york for whatever reason and it's just it's astonishing how different, how, 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 what an impact it's had. And just to be clear, for those patients who were not uh, eligible for a bone marrow transplant, this was a, then definitely death in a very short amount of time. Yes, the, 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 the uh, sort of survival of a patient with chronic myeloid leukemia, widely quoted, was about five years. And the reason is it when it under it begins and it's typically diagnosed in a, a phase that's called the chronic phase, which is why how it got that name. Um, uh, but um, it over a period of a couple of years, it flips into what's called blast crisis, which looks more like an acute leukemia, and it doesn't respond as well as acute leukemia to acute leukemia therapy, and that's the reason patients would die. Hmm. Okay. And just for the record, how common is this form of leukemia? Well, the, um, the number of new cases uh, per year in the United States, uh, I believe, is still roughly 5,000 new cases a year and another 5,000 new cases in Europe. So back when we were um, seeing the early, you know, exciting results with Gleevec, we were, we would actually be invited to attend some of the meetings at the company Novartis that was now going to market the drug. And they were um, you know, sort of projecting like, well, how many patients, what's the blood, the supply of drug that will be needed and so forth. And they're thinking, well, 10,000 new patients a year with a drug that's this successful, maybe we'll get a, a pretty good significant percentage of those who will want to take it. Um, and so 10,000 patients a year. What's a remarkable statistic is that within about five or six years, there were now more than 100,000 patients a year taking the drug because the patients weren't dying at the other end. So, and I'm, I'm, some of the listeners may know that, you know, the, not only, you know, was it a life-saving therapy, it was an incredible um economic, you know, story in terms of how uh, lucrative it can be. And that's another topic, of course. But um, uh, when, a, when a market like that, when a drug is that effective, the number of patients on it continues to grow and grow. And if a drug has to be taken, you know, as is, tr as is mostly true for Gleevec, um, for, for the rest of the patient's life, then, then you know, companies like that. <laughs> economic model. <laughs> and, and we'll come back to that in a, a little bit later in this uh, program. Right now, I wanted to um, maybe drill down into Gleevec a little bit, um, just remembering that I and most of our listeners are not uh, going to be able to understand the highly technical aspects of the drug. But one of the ways we've been describing this uh, conference this year is um, Beyond Chemo and Radiation. And when I first started working with my two uh, colleagues on the topic, I had no idea what they were talking about. And frankly, I was kind of asleep at the wheel and hadn't known there'd been this dramatic revolution in cancer care. Can you explain why we're talking about Beyond Chemo and Radiation and why is Gleevec such an important uh, bellwether in that revolution? Well, as you mentioned in your introduction, Gleevec is an example, and you know it's it's one of, it's become a poster child for what's called targeted therapy, um, and so the the concept is really you know quite simple, and it and it's founded on the recognition that cancers are caused by mutations in the DNA of a normal cell acquired through various you know, mechanisms, you know, including the fact that they just naturally occur. Um, and uh, in the case of chronic myeloid leukemia, 
the mutation is a chromosome translocation. Um, and what's particularly remarkable about chronic myeloid leukemia is, is, is it's actually the only, you know, alteration of any, you know, significance that's in those cells. So it's kind of a single hit, if you will, to the genome. Um, and the way I got into the Gleevec story is during my um, postdoctoral training, I chose to work on that translocation and try to figure out, you know, okay, we see it in these cells. It's, it's, it's present pretty much 100% of the time if in a patient who has this particular disease. Is it the cause of the disease or is it a consequence of the disease? So using, you know, scientific method, um, which at the time the ability to do this experiment was, was, was really cutting edge, we were able to, to uh, clone the, the translocation, which means, you know, two proteins, one known as BCR and one known as ABL, hook them together, create what's created by the translocation and introduce it into the cells of a mouse and see if they will now develop chronic myeloid leukemia. Um, and that, that's work that I, you know, was a part of during my training. And it was just, you know, unbelievably exciting and fascinating to work through all the technical challenges and, and trying to even execute the experiment and then to see the result, um, which is so, that it is, is the cause. Yeah. So in other words, what you're saying is that you already as a, as a postdoc uh, were looking at the actual mechanism that caused this disease that then subsequently you came to work on the, the drug for. Am I right? Yeah. In fact, I would, I would actually, you know, restate it as sort of one of my opening comments about the freight elevator is curiosity drove me to work on this problem. You know, why do CML cells become leukemia cells? Is it because of this translocation? Mm -hmm. Just that, that question. Um, the thought that if we proved that it did cause the leukemia, that there would be a drug against it was really not front and center for me. Uh, at all, I. I uh, Interesting. Well, well, the, and there's a good reason for that. Um, no one had developed a targeted therapy, um, and the idea, and, and we we knew that one of the genes, this gene called ABL, um, is a is in a class of genes known as a kinase, and a kinase is a enzyme that puts phosphate residues on other proteins. It just uh, it's part of a sort of bucket brigade, brigade of, of signaling molecules. And um, back then, we didn't know about the human genome at the level, obviously, we do now. We didn't know how many kinases there were, but we knew there were a lot of them. And one molecule that every kinase uses to put phosphate on a substrate is the famous molecule ATP. Um, and so... If you think like a drug designer, you're, you're going to say, well, then there's an enzymatic activity. We should be able to block it by designing something that looks like ATP. Um, but the idea of giving a drug that blocked ATP binding would be perhaps even worse than chemotherapy in terms of side effects. So it, the, the idea that this would you know, immediately lead to, oh, all you have to do is make an inhibitor and you'll, everything will be hunky-dory, that, that was not a concept that was, you know, embraced by the field at all at the time. And so, since in many ways, Gleevec was proof that actually dogma isn't true, that you can actually do this. So I'm curious, you just said that uh, the, the mechanism by which Gleevec works, there was a possibility that it would have been more devastating than chemo? Well, maybe I'm, I can't really <laughs> say for sure that's the case, but there was no reason to think that it wouldn't have a lot of side effects. It, it would be, it, it, kinases are, are really important for all kinds of fundamental processes in the same way that many of the targets of chemotherapy, which are to block enzymes that replicate DNA, you know, are also fundamental. So. Got it. So if you messed around with them, chances of making a very big mess were, were, were potentially very great. Yeah. Okay. All right. Because I think the way the story is being told now is there's a little bit of a just so story about it, right? Like, well, it is now that we know that um, that we can target these 
uh, cancer cells and not, as your colleague said, you know, take the baseball bat into the room and smash everything in sight in order to turn off the light. Um, well, obviously, this is the way things go. And what you're pointing out is it's not it's obvious now, but that's because we have a very clear in the rearview mirror in a, in a sense. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. So anyway, go ahead, please. Um, you were in the middle of how we got this amazing drug, I think. So, um, yeah, I guess the, uh, you know, where I was going with this is that I, I, out of curiosity, was, you know, studying why CML cells are CML cells. Yes. Um, now, um, the next steps are, you know, further, you know, further delving into the mechanism when, um, when in a sort of separate universe, uh, in Switzerland, the, um, the drug company, which at the time was called Siba Geigy, um, and later merged with Sandoz to become Novartis, um, in the laboratory of Nicholas Leiden, um, had, you know, for lack of a better word, a, a bit of a sort of skunk works or s sort of stealth program, just asking, is it possible to make an inhibitor of a kinase that would have some selectivity? Um, and there was, he had, and, and the concept that the target would be the a, ABL gene in, in chronic myeloid leukemia was not on the table at all in Nick's mm -hmm. mind. In <laughs> fact, um, the lead horse was uh, a kinase called EGFR. Um, which has now become a fantastic success story, you know, decade plus later in lung cancer. Um, but um, the the target that gave rise to Gleevec was actually originally um, a, a kinase called the platelet-derived growth factor receptor, or PDGFR. Um, and the reason to think about making an inhibitor of that kinase is there was growing literature that that might be a drug for heart disease. Um, because the the proliferation of the coronary arteries that occurs during atherosclerosis um, was thought to perhaps be dependent upon this PDGFR enzyme. Um, well, of course, that didn't work out. Um, it turns out that Gleevec is a very potent PDGFR inhibitor, um, but it doesn't have a role um, in heart disease. Um, it was only when... Um, the the lead compound that became Gleevec uh, was tested against some other kinases that the connection to chronic myeloid leukemia was made. Um, and again, this is a bit of, you know, ancient history now, but at the time, um, well, let me back up. The, the concept here is, uh, are there any other kinases that this drug inhibits? You know, as as we just talked about, if it if it blocks the binding of ATP, it might inhibit all kinases. Um, well, in order to answer that question, um, you actually need a panel of kinases uh, to test it against. But there wasn't such a panel because no one had you know been down this path before. Mm -hmm. So just by sort of talking with different academic labs and grabbing bits and pieces of assays. Uh, Nick was able to test, you know, a panel of about eight or so kinases, um, and it potently inhibited um, the viral form of ABL called VABL that's involved in a mouse leukemia virus. Um, and that was when the aha moment happened with, well, maybe, um, maybe the cancer in which this could be tested should be chronic myeloid leukemia. Um, so, uh, and then it was only really years later when there were much more extensive panels of kinase inhibitors, or kinases to test inhibitors against, that the selectivity, uh, the ability to make a selective inhibitor um, was recognized as a reality. Yeah. So, in today's world where you can test against the roughly 500 kinases that exist, um, in the human genome, Gleevec only inhibits three kinases very potently. Uh, it's remarkably selective. It's um, amazing. And it's a bit of serendipity that it, it happened that way. And we, we actually know a lot more about how to get selectivity now. So, so which is why there's been such a, you know, pivot of, of the entire industry to, you know, to go after this class of targets. 
Amazing. Amazing. Uh, you had a further role in addressing uh, CML in that you did the work on this drug that focused on the resistance to the drug. Can you say a little bit about that? Sure. So um, th this is a, um, also a, an example of, of how having a foot in the clinical world as well as in the laboratory world can, I think, give you um, sort of the ability to kind of see into the future a little bit. So I was, um, I was taking care of patients um, with chronic myeloid leukemia who are on Gleevec and, you know, went through this euphoria of having, you know, almost every single patient benefit dramatically. Um, but as, as is the case with essentially all new cancer drugs, you, you start out testing patients who have advanced disease, um, and then you move earlier into, um, into, into patients who are newly diagnosed. Um, so many of the first patients we treated, some of whom were already in the blast crisis of, of chronic myeloid leukemia, had had dramatic responses. Um, but then, you know, six months later, I would see them in clinic after, after being, you know, feeling fantastic the week, the month before, and now they're starting to relapse. So I knew that this was just sort of the, the rug was being pulled out from under us. Um, and uh, it just became paramount in my mind uh, to try to understand why. And I was, um, I had some optimism about at least answering the, the why because we knew so much about how Gleevec worked. Um, you know, most chemotherapy drugs, we really don't know how they work. So we don't know how to look for what might cause resistance. But in this particular case, um, I mean, it was a really straightforward question. Uh, Gleevec works by blocking the activity of this enzyme BCR able. Now that the patients who respond have that enzyme activity inhibited. Now, if, if, if relapse is happening, is that enzyme activity restored or is it not restored? It could be either answer. And I, there, I would say that most people betting on this would have said, oh, well, it's blast crisis. There's all kinds of genetic changes in those cells. They don't need BCR-ABLE anymore. So it'll still be inhibited and something else is woken up and can drive the growth wow. of the cells. But in fact, BCR-ABLE was turned back on in every single case that we looked at. So that was a smoking gun, and it said, look at BCR-ABLE very carefully and see why the drug can't inhibit it anymore. Um, and what we found were these mutations in BCR-ABLE that tweaked the structure of the, of the enzyme just enough so that the drug couldn't bind anymore, but it could still cause the growth proliferation. Um, so it's a classic example of sort of Darwinian selection for the fittest cell that you know, acquires that right combination of a mutation that allows it to escape. But once we cataloged those, um, the I, and, and another line of investigation from um, a scientific colleague named John Curian, whose expertise is in structural biology, um, he had solved the puzzle of why why does imatinib or Gleevec bind specifically to ABL? He, he, by solving the structure of the enzyme bound to, to Gleevec, an insight arose as to, um, as, as to how that was so selective. Um, and then some predictions about where these were easily you know, made about why these mutations were causing resistance. Um, and so uh, a consequence of all of that uh, was, well, you know, we actually should be able to inhibit the, the resistant mutations with an inhibitor that doesn't, that binds ABLE in a slightly different way. And that's what this drug dasatinib is. Um, and again, a, an example of, of how s there's so much serendipity in science. Th I actually described that work at a meeting of the American Association for Cancer Research in about, I think, 2002. Um, and uh, in the audience was a scientist from Bristol-Myers Squibb who um, heard the presentation and reached out to me afterwards and said, uh, I heard your talk and um, this idea of an of a inhibitor that binds the ABLE gene in a different way, we might have that compound in our, in our inflammation program. 
I was like, really? <laughs> Why would that be? <laughs> and he said, well, you know, long story, but there's a kinase in, in T cells, which are in cells involved in the immune system that we think would be a great target for a drug and we have an inhibitor for it. And when we asked what else does it inhibit, it inhibits ABLE. Um, so it gets a little bit into the weeds, but um, it's a fantastic, it's a suddenly another light bulb just like, boom, we should test that immediately. So we, he sent us the compound and we tested it against the mutants and it worked against all of them, but one of them. And that fast-tracked it from a shelf in BMS where it was looking for a home to a CML drug in literally about two years. Oh, my so, goodness. Um, so I, uh, yeah, and then, you know, there's now, I think, five, and there will be a sixth drug approved for CML. All of them inhibit ABLE in slightly different ways. Um, Astonishing. So. Astonishing. Astonishing. I'm going to switch uh, directions now and ask you to talk a little bit about, we've heard a little bit already about how you came to be interested in the kinds of questions that you are, but I want to take the, maybe take your history back even further. Um, you were the child of physicians and you went away to college and studied history. Can you talk about what that major, um, what the study of history has done for you or maybe hasn't done for you as a, as a researcher? I think, I mean, in thinking back to when I was, you know, 19 or so when I made that decision, um, I think I, I saw liberal arts education as uh, the opportunity to just broaden one's, you know, horizons. And I've always enjoyed history. And uh, so quite honestly, I probably took it more for enjoy. I chose that major more because I enjoyed it. Um, I don't think I ever really wanted to become a historian per se. Um, but then when I landed in medical school, um, I, I felt like I, number one, I was way behind my classmates because I you know, had not taken another two courses in biochemistry, et cetera. And it was actually quite distressing for a year or so. Um, but I was able to catch up. But I, I think I it did give me a somewhat broader perspective, um, curiosity, maybe in a slightly different way, um, maybe a little bit more interest in society and how t the, the, the rest of the world can influence, in this case, you know, how scientists think and, and do their work. Um, I actually took several courses um, in the history and philosophy of science when I was at Princeton. And that's when I first learned about Thomas Kuhn and uh, the sort of idea that science doesn't just proceed objectively forward, that there are these revolutions beginning with Copernicus and others. And so, um, I don't know, maybe, yeah, I'll stop there because I'm probably wandering, but um, I, I, I think it's just a, you know, a broad, you know, view of the world and openness to new ideas and no, I, I, I had heard you elsewhere talk about Thomas Kuhn, and of course my heart leapt. Uh, but as a, as a person who teaches in a liberal arts college where many of our students come in planning to become physicians, it, it pains me often to see them um, struggling and then not achieving that goal for one reason or another. Um, and it also pains me to see the many students who come in and they take every biochemistry class because they're sure that those are the only paths to becoming a, a good doctor. And so um, I'll just point out to those students that it turns out that uh, philosophy, for instance, is uh, folks who study philosophy do quite well on the MCAD, the, the entrance exam to medical school. So I'm always curious about those stories about how, how the study of history, um, for instance, would shape even the, even the methods of studying history. And I think we don't maybe think of history as being about puzzle solving, but I, I, I submit that it, it actually is. Well, it's it's about doing research, and we required we were at Princeton. We wrote theses and what we called junior papers, and so you went very deep into a narrow topic, and and it, it's it, I guess I'd call that a little bit of discovery. You really go, I mean, at least in those days, you'd go into the stacks deep in the library and really find primary literature, and uh, and and there was a, a sense of curiosity at finding things and. 
and sort of wonder at reading things that were written, you know, a hundred years ago or something and, and then pride in putting it into your own little, you know, written document. So um, as far as the biochemistry, you learn the biochemistry in medical school or in graduate school. So you really don't need to, you know, you just, as I said, I was behind, but I was able to catch up and I'm constantly learning new biochemistry <laughs> that was actually in the textbook back when I was in medical school, but it just didn't click with me as to why I should remember that particular page or that reaction. But then, you know, you see something in your, you know, modern day science and you're like, oh my God, now I get it. So. <laughs> As, as with so much of life, right? Oh, if only I had studied that wiring harness on the alternator in the car. Uh, uh, so I wonder if you, I wonder if the ways in which you came to your research path uh, shaped the way that you are as a researcher. That is, you really came to it through medical school rather than through an undergraduate degree in, in the physical sciences. What's... I mean, when I read your description of coming to be a, medic, uh, a, a scientific researcher while in the middle, middle of medical school, my immediate response was, I mean, I sort of didn't know that was allowed or I didn't know that you would have credentials at the end of that to be doing what you're doing. Well, you obviously have the credentials because you're doing it. But is that an unusual path? Is it, um, did it, was it advantageous in certain kinds of ways? Um, uh, well, we have a... I mean, I, 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 there are many examples of, of uh, successful scientists um, at this stage in their career who did not, you know, have that, you know, line of sight when they were in high school or college. Um, that said, there are some fantastic pathways if you if you do, you know, feel that passion at that younger age to get there through, um, you know, combined uh, undergraduate medical school type programs, as well as after college, the um, combined MD-PhD or MSTP, medical scientist training program um, pathways. Um, so there, I've, I have nothing negative to say about doing it that way, which is not what I did. Um, but what I, 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 I'm glad the system allows the flexibility for the so-called late bloomer, as which is what I've been called, and and many others. Um, in fact, one of the when I um, was recruited to New York, um, the the person who recruited me is Harold Varmus, who was the yes. CEO and president of Sloan Care, and no, exactly, and he's now at Cornell. But um, uh, he he's a late bloomer. He was an English major at Amherst, and oh. um, I mean, I, I yeah. I think he wouldn't mind if I said, you know, he, he decided to work at the NIH rather than, you know, get drafted to serve in Vietnam. Oh. And, uh, and then, you know, look what happened. So, um, so I think uh, there's many ways to get there. And uh, is it advantageous to do it my way? I can't say it necessarily is, except it, it kind of gets to the point that we were talking about by majoring in history. I think there was a certain sort of maturity in the way I could, I would think about things. Um, also maybe a sense that, you know, the clock is ticking. I better, you know, really mm -hmm. focus. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I was super organized in the lab <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and I, I, and also, I, you know, this, after, after going through clinical training where you've sort of, you've seen a lot, um, and you've seen a lot of personalities, um, mm -hmm. and, so you, 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 you're thin, your skin gets a little thicker, you know, I mean, if you know where I'm going with this, I mean, mm -hmm. people are going to criticize you, you know, rightly so for, you know, things along the way. And you've got to have confidence. Mm -hmm. Um, and also the willingness to, um, accept criticism and learn from it. And mm -hmm. I've, I've seen some younger students just that they, they don't have that maturity yet. And so it's, mm -hmm. it's hard. It strikes me that what you're how you're describing your own trajectory also suggests something about the way that you're now running your own lab. That is, you have space to hear people with unconventional views, partly because your pathway was a little bit less conventional than many of your classmates, and therefore you might have a little bit more patience for the iconoclast. Yeah, I think that's that's probably fair. Thanks for pointing that out. Maybe I, it's a good therapy session for me here. <laughs> 
philosophy is therapy, not usually something we're accused of. Um, so uh, one of the things that this podcast is exploring and that really is at the heart of the Nobel Conference is the relationship between scientific and ethical questions. Since the Nobel Conference was founded, it has been about scientific questions and the ethical implications that come along with them. And indeed, it's the reason that I was interested in uh, coming aboard as the chair is that I really wanted to, as the director, I really wanted to focus on that, that linkage. Um, so um, in some sciences, that's a harder sell than others. Um, medicine obviously has a Hippocratic oath that begins, you know, first do no harm. Um, and so it, it seems to me that the practice of medicine doesn't give one the luxury of thinking that ethical questions are somehow separate from scientific questions. Um, I wonder, I wonder if you just want to have a reaction to that, first of all, about how you understand the practice of medicine as, a, as connected up to ethical questions, ethical challenges. I, I think they're intimately tied together. It, it, it has to do with um, a number of important concepts. One is the, the relationship of the physician with the patient and this you know, autonomy of decision-making versus paternalism and, and so forth. Um, that's a complex one. Yeah, and uh, I mean, all of us have been patients and, and trust our physicians. Um, but, and particularly in, in the context of a cancer patient, it's tricky to um, sort of, I guess, walk the, the line between, you know, being compassionate and, you know, giving hope but also being truthful about the diagnosis and the prognosis and, and so forth. So there, there's tricky things there. Um, and uh, there's lots, of, I think there's lots of training in that, at least in, at least amongst the institutions I've been involved in and um, colleagues who, you know, through, you know, apprenticeship, et cetera, help with those conversations. But there's always examples where, Sometimes a, a family will say you can't tell this elder you know, patient that that they have cancer and things like that. There's actually yeah. a movie about that right now. Yeah, yeah. We we. But anyway, so that's one category um, uh, of of issues. Uh, I think the other one that you know is very topical is um, access to care, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm sure there is a spectrum of opinions amongst the medical profession about this. Um, but I, I certainly don't run into many people who are opposed to the idea of healthcare as a right and uh, a, some, for, some concept of a universal access solution, which I think we're lacking in this country. Indeed. And, uh, do you see, from your perspective as someone who works within academe, but works obviously with uh, biopharmaceutical industries, do you, uh, we don't have a lot of time to unpack this, but do you have thoughts about paths forward in that, in that category? It's a way too simple question for a way yeah. too complicated issue. I wish I knew the path forward, but I I try to um, speak, you know, about the issue in a way that's um, not, you know, too confrontational, but maybe I'm taking the wrong approach. I, the, the one that I can um, see a little bit more into is the topic of drug pricing. Mm -hmm. um, so the... The immediate assumption that biopharma is evil um, and they're exploiting the system in order to get the most price for their drug is too exaggerated. Um, mm -hmm. th th there are um, incentives required for the risk that companies take to develop some of these exciting drugs that we've talked about. Mm -hmm. um, I've also, you know, I, we didn't go into it, but um, I, I've been uh, amazingly impressed with how quickly once a company, you know, embraces, you know, moving forward on a new drug, uh, how quickly they can do it and benefit society by, by putting those resources, you know, t 
to work. I think we're actually seeing it today uh, in the enormous amount of effort that's being devoted to a COVID-19 vaccine. Um, I mean, it's it's not my area, but I mean, almost all the ones that are be, that we're reading about, you know, today are using technology that's never really been used to make a vaccine. And it's really impressive what what's being reported um, in terms of immune responses um, and the scale that this is happening. Um, and you can't ex- you can't get something like that um, without you know an organized infrastructure that does not exist in the academic world. So I, I think that there has to be some kind of partnership. Um, but um, I, you you. You didn't say it in the introduction, but um, I serve on the board now of Novartis Pharmaceuticals. And so I, I have this now, I guess I'm a fly on the wall in the in the room where it happens. <laughs> and so um, I, I know the access question is, is top of mind uh, at the companies. And, and so um, I also know that there's a history in the investor community of expecting a certain return um, you know, from the pharma industry, which perhaps is unrealistic. Um, but that's a hard conversation for me to, you know, yeah, really weigh in on significantly at this stage. But um, I, 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 I don't think that the simple view that, you know, pharma is evil and purely profit-seeking at any cost is, is accurate. Um mm-hmm. On the other hand, I think there's a lot of self-examination going on in the pharma industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so, And for uh, Nobel Conference watchers, you should know that there will be a, a presenter at the conference. And in fact, I'll interview him later also, Jim Thomas of Just Evotech Biotherapeutics, who is himself um, a big pharma. Well, I guess he, he would describe it as sort of medium pharma um, uh, research researcher uh, who will be who will be one of the presenters at the conference. And so that perspective from within the biopharmaceutical industry will be, will be a voice at the conference itself. Yeah, that's great. I mean, and that, when you said medium or, you know, biotech, you know, that's another interesting change. It's, it's not really on the ethics side of this, but it's um, the innovation, the real creativity. Uh, and, and maybe that also means, in high impact, you know, really life, you know, game changing drug development is happening in that smaller sector, mm-hmm. um, much more so than in big pharma now. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, cons- it's a talent question. You know, young people who want to make a difference want to be a smaller company. Interesting. Um, Interesting. I'm going to make a very weird analogy here. I actually work in philosophy of food. And one of the things that I'm seeing right now as a result of COVID is, and well, and really as a result of the last 10 years of critiques of the agri-food industry are lots and lots of young people going into middle and small scale um, agro-food enterprises and that 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 uh, large-scale industrial agriculture uh, is being challenged in precisely as a result of that, not as a result of, say, federal farm policy or something like that. Yeah, it sounds like an interesting parallel. The the, the economics of this is that the biotech, small biotechs, then become the, you know, targets for purchase by the big well, pharma. Right. So. You'll, you'll notice that Jim is now just Evotech. He was just biotherapeutics last year at this time. So, yeah, exactly. Uh, so I wanted to think um, about Project Genie, actually, as an interesting case study of an ethical um, model for medical researchers. I found a magazine interview about your project. It was from a cancer newsletter in which you joke that when former President Joe Biden launched his cancer moonshot, he said, and this is a quote from Biden, you're not going to like this, but imagine if you all work together. I'm not kidding. What if you all work together? And you said, I think the vice president was a little bit suspicious of our willingness to share data. I would like to say that we clearly overcame that. So talk to me about that. What's go- what's going on there? Um, and, you know, talk about it as an ethical issue or as an ethical opportunity for um, um, researchers. So the I think the the point that the vice president was making is that um, he, he's spot on about one thing, and that is that academic researchers want to get credit for their work and get famous based on, you know, 
keeping their data to themselves until it's fully shrink wrapped and ready to publish mm. um, and getting a nice paper um, mm. and then, you know, getting invited to go to important meetings and mm-hmm. <laughs> get promoted, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been a problem with the field for a long time. Um, and not unique to your field, by the way, right? That is true across um, the academic boundaries. Right. But um, there's certain and there's a, you know, there's a part of I can't say that's a good thing at all. But um, <laughs> on the other hand, that that's a powerful motivator to work hard and, and you know, and and. and get your work published, um, right. and get credit. So, um, so the, the, the circumstance of the genie project is that the technology of being able to sequence, um, the DNA of tumors from patients who are being seen for their medical care, uh, um, had come onto the stage. Um, and, uh, it, it, it was, a, it was a, literally a dream that you could possibly do this um, not even 10 years ago. Um, and the technology suddenly underwent a, you know, inflection, which made it possible to beyond anyone's imagination to, to implement this at scale, um, with some cost, but not a ridiculous cost, um, for, for a couple thousand dollars or less, you know, the price of a scan, uh, a patient's tumor could be sequenced in the clinic. Um, so a couple of, you know, centers who have the um, wherewithal to, you know, at least do a pilot in this area had made those decisions based on, you know, advocates like me at their centers saying, we, we really got to do this for a couple of reasons. One, it's the right thing to do by our patients. Like we can't prove it's going to make a difference to them, but we know there's some examples where it already has. Um, and two, um, this is our competitive advantage. So, you know, as an academic center, we should, you know, compile these cohorts of patients. Um, and three, it, you know, it makes us look good compared to the competition for attracting <laughs> new patients. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons you can sell it to management. Sure, sure. <laughs> so, um, but in, in as we started doing it, and you know, Sloan Kettering is sort of the big gorilla in this. Um, we were sequencing thousands of patients and we were really you know, having a field day of, of, you know, curiosity and looking at the data and so forth. But it quickly, I saw that, you know, yeah, we can do, you know, several thousand, but we need, you know, like a hundred thousand or many hundreds of thousands to make sense of this. I mean, this is just going to go nowhere. <laughs> so, um, so I, I, had been Say more about that just for one second. What, what do you mean by that? That's not necessarily clear to me. That the, the complexity of cancer. W- w- one thing this revealed is that uh, the cancer is you know lots of small subsets. Um, there, you know, the idea of lung cancer and colon cancer and breast cancer. Those are big lumped categories of of lots of diseases mm-hmm. that, at a molecular mm-hmm. level, are are quite different and will and already, uh, in some cases, demand different therapies depending on what your genetic profile is. Uh, and lung cancer is the best example of that. There's now about six different drugs at least that um, have all come on the stage in, just in the last five or six years that you know demand that the tumor be sequenced in order to know how to treat the patient. Um, mm-hmm. But if you you wouldn't have the evidence to to say what I just said um, unless you had data on tens of thousands of such lung cancer patients, and now we have that, um, but we didn't before. Um, so, uh, so so the to me it was it was clear we needed to vector in this direction, um, and I, what I needed was um, to overcome. First, the reluctance of you know academic researchers to to hang on to their data until it's fully published. Um, uh, second, um, to convince uh, at the um, on the sort of legal side within the institutions, you know, what about the consequences for privacy um, and the potential for lawsuits and so forth? You know, are we putting the institution at risk? Um, uh, the, the third uh, was, you know, how do you pay for it? Um, it, it does not 
you know, it, 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 the sequencing's been done, but just putting it together costs money, et cetera. So, um, so the sort of the perfect storm of, of things happened. I was elected to be the uh, president of the American Association for Cancer Research. Mm. Uh, and so it gave you a kind of bully pulpit in a sense. It, it gave me a bully pulpit. It also gave me a chance to look at the books at the ACR. And I saw that there was some um, money that could perhaps be deployed to this if I could f- convince leadership beyond myself that it was worth doing. Um, and the, the other thing it allowed was um, a, a sort of an honest broker to sort of control the data or control the process uh, so that it wouldn't be Sloan Kettering world takeover. Got it. It's like the that. ACR, which is uh, kind of a neutral confederacy of yeah got, okay got it so um so the the sociology of, of pulling it together was was i mean it's probably the what i'm most proud of because uh you know really you know egocentric cancer centers decided to hold their hands together and and pool the data um and then i've actually you know gotten to be quite close with our general counsel and i know the general counsels at some of the other institutions in order to walk them to a level of comfort with signing off on you know the release of the genome, genomic data from their institutions um so um and then now to because we're at a size where we um we're actually having lots of users outside the consortium um, accessing the data. It's all open access. That was another really important. Oh my gosh! So there is. I mean, there's a little bit of an asterisk there. We the the the, the member institutions get to see the pooled data for six to twelve months before it goes completely open. Um, that was a carrot, you know, that had to be thrown in to to get everyone to come together. But that's that's been and. You know, that's been embraced by lots of other groups now as, as kind of a model. Sure. So. Does it continue to grow? The, the Does membership continue to grow? It does. We, we started with eight and then we grew to 18. Um, we um, are entertaining another expansion. We want to get um, Asian sites as well um, involved. Um, so, uh, but there's a, um, what I've learned is that there's, a lot of people will want to join, but they won't, you know, be all in, you know, in terms of, uh, yeah, there's, there's some lift as well as benefit. So, um, and, uh, I, yeah, again, this more sort of organizational philosophy, what's the right size, uh, to work together. Um, I, I think there's a chance there, there's the possibility of being too big. So, but on the other hand, you know, like the vice president said, you know, he also, you know, he didn't understand that argument when I tried to make it to him. He's like, why don't you guys all join together? I was like, well, we're, we're doing just fine as a group of eight right now. Let us get going. <laughs> but I would welcome another conversation with him come November, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Uh, well, I want to leave you with one last opportunity, and that is um, if you could uh, advance some position, some issue, some cause to whatever group you could advance it to, what would you like to tell some group of people? What's something that you just really wish you could carry forward to a larger audience? Wow, that's a big question. Um, I think uh, the first thing that comes to my mind, which is partly because of the current time, is our field needs more diversity um, and we're acutely aware of it um, and we've got all kinds of excuses about pipeline and so forth. Um, but I think I've become more aware of racial disparities. I mean, I've, I was aware of them, but I'm much more so. Um, and uh, I, I would like to see more young people of diverse backgrounds coming into science because um, it, it's such a rewarding career and uh, it's a place where, you know, a creative mind can make an impact and, and ideas 
you know, even if they sound crazy, <laughs> are welcomed and discussed in this community. Um, so, uh, thank you for that. Thank you very much. And Dr. Charles Sawyer's, thanks so much for your work and for your time with us today. Charles Sawyer's will be a part of the 2020 Nobel Conference, which will be airing on October 6th and 7th. Uh, and you can find out about it at the Gustavus Adolphus College uh, webpage. Thank you very much, Dr. Sawyers. Thank you, Lisa. It's been a pleasure chatting. The 2020 Nobel Conference will take place virtually on October 6th and 7th. This year's topic is cancer in the age of biotechnology. All lectures, discussions, and other supporting materials are available at any time after the conference at the Nobel Conference webpage, gustavus.edu slash Nobel Conference, where you can also register in advance for the free virtual conference. ScienceWise, Questions at the Confluence of Science and Ethics, is produced in conjunction with the Nobel Conference at Gustavus Adolphus College. Our podcast engineer is Gustavus alumnus, freelance videographer and photographer Will Clark. Our theme music is Thinking Blues by the inimitable blues singer Bessie Smith. And I'm your host, Lisa Heldke, professor of philosophy and director of the Nobel Conference. Thinking blues of my mind.